You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 5720 Ridge Avenue. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. We had a love feast yesterday. Circle of Hope has a quarterly celebration as a gathering of the whole church. Covenant members from across all of our congregations come together to baptize and um, welcome folks who want to make a covenant with Circle of Hope. And the, the term love feast often sounds strange to people who are new to us or are unfamiliar with this idea. But do you know that we are carrying on a tradition that, a long tradition from the early church, we didn't invent the love feast. Um, There are references in the New Testament of the early believers having love feasts. I don't know if you guys, can you see that behind me or should I move over? Sort of, okay. Um, Biblical scholars agree that the New Testament worship consisted of love feasts followed by preaching and communion. And a big part of this apostolic worship was, of the early church was centered around a meal together that they referred to as the agape meal, or the love feast. The Brethren in Christ denomination has a long tradition of love feasts. Here is a picture I found of preparations for a love feast in Ohio in 1911. This was through the Historic Society, um, the Brethren in Christ Historic Society. You'll notice their plain dress and that it's all women preparing the tables. Our love feast began with music and worship and communion and then the meal. So here's a picture of our preparations for the love feast yesterday. These pictures help us get a sense of ourselves um, being a part of the trans-historical body of Christ. We are connected to believers across time and space. Yesterday, before the love feast, we had baptisms. And Johnny mentioned that, uh, again, there's a long tradition of baptism, even in this area. So I found a picture of this plaque is in the Wissahickon. It was from the first baptism of the Church of the Brethren in 1735, on Christmas Day, no less. Christmas Day, they had baptisms in the Wissahickon. (laughs) We were going to have baptisms in the Delaware yesterday, but it was rainy and cold. So our adaptation, the birthing pool, indoors. So I mentioned last week in my talk that we have this blog that is devoted to celebrating the trans-historic body of Christ. It's about people and holidays that we want to remember, drawing from those who have gone before us. We have it to help us recognize our connection to the rich history and wisdom of Jesus followers throughout time. Uh, And these are people that, you know, we will never meet, who existed in a time and a culture that could be vastly different from our own. But they can help us see who God is, what God is doing, through them in their time, which puts us and our time in perspective too. 
We're not follow- we are not the first followers of Jesus, obviously, but we are connected to them through the same spirit who called them into the same grace in which we now stand. And Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 7 says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. In the past, the church has elevated special people to remember them and then to pray to them. In the Middle Ages, the veneration of saints was an important part of being religious. But that's not what we're doing. We are back to uh, a more biblical approach of appreciating our spiritual ancestors. Doing this reminds us that we haven't invented faith, obviously. We're living our faith in the context of all who have gone before us. And we have much to learn from them, how they got it right, where they got it wrong. The past is useful not just for comparison and learning, but for a deepening sense that we are a part of God's story over time and woven throughout history, revealing who God is and how God relates to us. We have a place. We are a covenanted people, as we, are, as we were demonstrating yesterday. And we, we have work to do, a greater purpose, a purpose greater than ourselves and our moment in history. God's redemption work began in Jesus and continues throughout this church. But I think sometimes the day-to-day can be so consuming that we can shrink into our present needs and just the moment ahead of us. So we need some inspiration for the long work of obedience to Christ. Our ancestors have been where we are going quite often. They help convince us to keep going. So we need to help each other and our children and others know who we are as the children of God and develop a real sense of being a part of God's story and God's work so that we keep building the kingdom of God into the future until it is fully revealed here on earth. I was talking to someone who said, I really want Circle of Hope to exist for the next 25 years. I want, it, I want us to be around for my children. And that's the idea. That the direction, that's the direction we're going. But we, we're taking some time to pause and look back at our ancestors to help us keep going and to think about where we are going. So let's take just a minute. I have a couple questions for you to just imagine. Maybe you've thought about this a lot. Maybe this is the first time. But have you ever imagined Circle of Hope 20 years from now? Do you ever imagine where you will be 20 years from now? I heard one of our cells say that their warm-up question this week was, where were you 10 years ago? Which is always interesting to consider. 
but take a moment to consider where you'll be 10 years or where we'll be 10 or 20 years from now. You might have to do the math. How old will you be? Where will you be in your own stages of life? What will your faith be? What will the next generation of faith be? It takes some faith to see beyond one's present time and to act for generations yet to be born. What kind of church needs is needed now to exist 20 years from now? What do we need to do now, this group of people right here? What do we need to do now as a congregation to exist even five years from now? Currently, we are two years old. This congregation is the newest congregation, Circle of Hope. We have a lot ahead of us. We're just beginning to grow in our presence here in the Northwest region of Philadelphia and the surrounding suburbs. We have a vision to be a congregation of 200 adults that will raise up the next leaders, multiply the next congregation, plant the next church. I wanna talk tonight about someone from history um, who hopefully can uh, inspire us as we consider the work that we have to do next. Jan Hus was born in Bohemia, which is now part of the Czech Republic. Uh, he was born in about 1371. By 1400, he was a priest and about to become part of the university in Prague. He helped launch a vigorous reform of the church. It was a particularly difficult time in Europe's history in the middle of what was known as the Great Schism. Some of you know more about this history than I do. I am not going to give a history lesson. This is just a simple overview. You can talk to probably to Jim Getz as the most ancient uh, history of all of us. Um, the King of France had moved the seat of the papacy from Rome to Avignon and rival popes were elected. So sides were taken and battles were fought and the Council of Constance called to solve the issue, was called to solve the issue from 1414 to 1418, over four years. And in the middle of this, Jan Hus was very influential, who was very influenced by uh, John Wycliffe of England. He denounced certain church practices in his sermons. He thought that it was unbiblical for the wine of communion to be reserved for the priests only. He wholeheartedly accepted the practice of the church worshiping in the Czech language rather than in Latin. And he argued that lay people had an important role to play in the administration of the church. He also taught 
that Christ was the head of the true head of the church, not the Pope. And he thought that church officials should not be earthly governors. Just from those points, you can get a sense of how his teachings were threatening the hierarchy of the church as it existed then. After the death of Pope Alexander V, uh, a crusade against the practices of granting indulgences was started. And an indulgence was a payment to the Catholic Church that bought you an exemption, basically, um, from punishment for particular sins. And Huss was a part of this crusade against the indulgences. He insisted that people attain forgiveness only by repentance, not by papal uh, indulgence. He argued that no pope or bishop had the right to raise a sword in the name of the church. And people followed him. They said he was right, and this was how the church should be instead of this church hierarchy that had been created. Huss's approach to being the church was human and Bible-centered and spiritual. But parties on both sides of the schism uh, thought that his views were idealistic at best or at worst, like a dreamy anarchism or even heresy. So, but he held, he held on to the church even with his creative loyalty, with this creative loyalty, even with all of the church's problems and facing all of the controversy that he was stirring up. But in, in 1412, he was excommunicated for insubordination. And two years later, in 1414, he was summoned before the Council of Constance to be tried. And the emperor had guaranteed his personal safety even if he was found guilty. He, ordered, he was ordered to recant certain heretical teachings that he had never taught, actually. So Huss declared that he had never t held or taught those particular doctrines, and he was willing to declare them false, but not to accept that he had taught them. The one point that he could say that he had a doctrinal difference with the council was that he taught that the office of the pope did not exist by God's command but it was established by the church so that things might be done in an orderly fashion. But, as you can imagine, the council, after, after years of chaos, um, they had just barely succeeded in uniting under a single pope, and they were not about to have their work be undone. So they found him guilty of heresy, and he was burned at the stake on July 6th, 1415. Jan Huss died for his conviction that the church was not meant to be this hierarchical, mediated relationship with God. He insisted that the church reflect what he saw in scripture, and he lost his life for it. Living in this era, it's hard to imagine the stakes being that high. But he probably knew what was at risk. 
I think he knew that this wasn't just about his era either. He was fighting for church reform that would ripple across centuries. And he didn't know if lasting change would happen. But he did, uh, but the need was so dire that he sacrificed everything to work for it. It takes a lot of faith to see beyond our own time and act for generations to be yet to be born, much less for those yet to join us here and now. I think we are prone to saving our own lives, meaning that we're out for ourselves in the present, trying to survive, trying to make it, rather than losing our lives for Christ's sake. And the Apostle Paul tells us so clearly that this is that that is how we gain true life. In Philippians 3, 5 through 8, he says, Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul found that gaining Christ led to losing his life. The more he conformed to the image of Christ, the more he recognized his loss as gain. I want to read to you from this book called The Spirituality of Paul by Rodney Reeves. Paul wasn't losing to gain more. He saw his loss as gain. And the only way he could see it that way was because of the cross of Christ. The cross turned losing into gain, shame into honor, death into life. The crucified life turned the world upside down, which made perfect sense to Paul. If death was the worst thing that could happen, but the best thing that can happen for a Christ believer, then no tragedy can overwhelm the good. No death can spoil life. No loss can erase what is gained, especially since loss is gain. The more Paul lost his life, the more he found it. Sacrifice does that. The more we sacrifice, the more we realize what is important. Indeed, sacrifices reveal what matters most. Huss lived for something that was true to Jesus and big enough to be important for the people he loved and for generations to come. It was worth risking his life to bring about. We may not be on trial for our lives, thank God, but every day we have opportunities to die to ourselves. This is what baptism signifies. We are baptized into the death of Christ and raised into the newness of life through the power of the resurrection. And our resurrected lives together are building an expression of the church that's not built on hierarchy, but on love, on the self-sacrificing love of Jesus that gets embodied through us and our life together. I hope that hearing Paul and Huss stokes our faith 
to see beyond our own existence right now, to act for those yet to join us and those yet to be born who need to experience the church as this radical, self-sacrificing people built and held together in love. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.